0: time has come is we've got to go the extra step
1: from the political science department at uw madison i compromise
2: we want to get the job done i'm addison lathers
0: geez they're they're trying to they're trying to balance the power here
2: and i'm claire salmi
0: it's a patriotic
2: responsibility for god's sake and this is 10:50 bascom
1: Today on 1050 Bascom, we'll be talking with Ethan Vanderwilden, a Ph.D. candidate in the political science department. Ethan studies political parties and electoral competition in Europe, the European Union, and the United States. Some of his most recent research examines radical right electoral outcomes and divergences in radical right party strategies. We'll ask Ethan about his research and its implications for the rise of right-wing populist parties in Europe, as well as in the context of the April elections in France, where, at the time of recording, President Emmanuel Macron is primarily campaigning against right and extreme right challengers. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. It's, it's always great to be able to set something up like this, and we're glad that you're here to talk to us.
0: Yeah, well, thanks for having me. So, yeah. Super excited to, to chat.
1: Or hype too. So since this is your first time that you've been on the podcast, uh, we love to start a little bit about you and your background. Uh, We're curious about what set you on the pathway towards becoming a PhD student in political science, studying political parties and electoral competition. So maybe share with us your academic and professional narrative, maybe beginning with your BA in political science and astrophysics.
0: So I went to like a very small liberal arts college in Maine called Colby. It had like 2,000 people. And I think like one thing to remember there is that it wasn't super uncommon for people to have strange double majors that cross over. Like I had friends who did computer science and studio art or like history and a language or something like that. So I actually think the path of physics and political science wasn't an anomaly because the model was very much like you can do this. I think one thing that drew me to political science for sure was my own like naivety going into college and then seeing Trump's election and being very surprised by that. I will admit I was definitely one of the people caught off guard. So I I wanted to like learn more about why that would happen because I think like my own upbringing just that didn't feel like something that was going to happen in America. So that drew me to a lot of classes where I was very much able to like expand my own perspectives and some really great teachers, especially in classes on European politics, the European Union. I took a class on like German politics, and these got me super interested in some of the parallels between the U.S. and Europe. As someone from America, my perspective definitely started there. But I think I really valued the opportunity to compare and dive deeper into other cases to try to help make sense of the world around me. In terms of physics, I just thought it was fun. Honestly, it was just like math puzzles and I still love doing math puzzles. To me, I would just get the problem sets and we would spend a bunch of hours trying to work through algebra. So I just stuck with that and we had some cool opportunities to do astrophysics-based labs using an observatory at night. But at this point, physics is kind of off the table. But I will say that I think having a different perspective from just political science has helped me a lot in terms of research ideas. I know we're going to talk about some projects that I've worked on in the past, but I will say like almost every political science project that I've done so far, I've conceived of in some way a physics analogy. And they're definitely not perfect but like my senior thesis undergrad i first thought about it in terms of if a party is going to break on to the scene they have to overcome some barrier and in physics we talk about that all the time with kinetic versus potential energy how might a particle break through a wall like what does it need to do that so obviously like an imperfect analogy but i think having multiple perspectives helps spur a lot of ideas and then in terms of like professional development. Basically, I feel like I just got super lucky with some opportunities to do research undergrad and that really drove me to want to do more research. So my junior year of college, I had studied abroad in Spain and during that time saw this rising movement of a radical right party who had not been on the scene previously. So in the past, most of the political space was dominated by a center-left and a center-right party. But around 2018, a new party, Vox, had broken onto the scene. They were first elected in 2019. But essentially, I was able to find some funds in our political science department, go back to Spain over the summer and do interviews with different politicians, mostly at like the regional level. But that just got me really excited about doing political science. And then I took kind of like a quantitative methods class and learned all these things about how you can combine that to put together like a comprehensive project. And I guess ever since then, I've thought like doing political science is both fun and you can answer some really interesting questions.
2: You're like the analytical poli-sci person's dream. We have people, (laughs) like researchers come on and tell, we ask for advice for students and they always say, you need some sort of like STEM or stats background to <laughs> differentiate yourself from mm-hmm. all the other people who just want to like read philosophy and you know talk about yeah sociology which is great but <laughs> yeah everyone what? rolls their eyes a little bit but I think to your mm-hmm. point that's a cool perspective to bring in.
0: Yeah and I do think like political science should be a big space. Lots of different methods and perspectives that we can come from so I think like I definitely am thankful that I have that kind of like quantitative background, but people come in all sorts of perspectives. And I think especially here, just with different members of my cohort, I've learned a ton from them who have totally different life experiences, training backgrounds, all that.
1: Speaking of which, you have all these perspectives, all this experience that you've highlighted. How did that lead to you pursuing a doctoral degree in political science at UW-Madison? How'd you get here?
0: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's a good question. Yeah, I think there's there's definitely a couple pieces to that. One of them is, like, from this research, I, I felt it was really meaningful to me and interesting and something that I felt like I would want to do more of because I definitely did my senior thesis based on this research project and had way more questions than I had answers. So that, like, made me kind of want to apply to do a PhD program because that's an opportunity to pretty much just do research as a job. I think Wisconsin is a great program. I had some people in my life from out here so that kind of like got me interested in the first place and then there's also just great faculty here who I really wanted to work with and luckily I sent an application and got in and here we are. (laughs) Yeah, I also I do want to stress also I think like a lot of my own journey, I feel, just has to do with like some randomness. I applied to a couple different places and didn't get in everywhere, but got in here and here I am and happy to be here. So
2: Still, thank you. Yeah. Good to hear. I think that always like eases people's anxiety a little bit when people come on who are really successful or they're doing really cool research and we ask them what they've done and they're like, I don't know, I just like did one thing after another and now I'm here.
0: Yeah. I've had a bunch of people that are super supportive and helping the process. But in terms of like, I honestly feel that if there wasn't funding for the undergrad research at my college, there's a very good chance that I wouldn't have applied to a PhD program, at least now. Part of that is just like opportunities came. I tried my best to take them and we'll see where it goes from here.
2: Well, speaking of some of the research... Maybe before we dive into specifics, we want to ask you more broadly about the spread of populism across Europe. You were an expert panelist on this undergrad panel event in PoliSci that engaged the question of why right-wing populism seems to be spreading across Europe and what those implications are for the future of democracy. That's kind of a big question, but we do want to follow up with you on that one. So populism on both the left and the right has recently become a powerful force in Western politics, and... We would appreciate if maybe you could start out with helping our listeners understand how populism or populist movements are characterized in the literature right now.
0: Yeah, so <laughs> that definitely is a big question, but a great question. I think most of my understanding and I think a pretty like agreed upon definition kind of comes from these two political scientists, Cas and Cristobal Rivera-Kaltwasser. So I'm going to just like present this kind of definition of what populism is and they take what they call an ideational approach so kind of relating to ideology but calling populism a thin-centered ideology considering society to be ultimately separated into two homogenous and antagonistic camps the pure people and the corrupt elite so i think we can like unpack a couple different points in there because it is like a very broad definition so you're going to consider society as like ultimately this competition between two groups. But who are these groups? Who are the pure people? They can be defined in all sorts of ways. And that's why we see many different types and manifestations of populism. So in some cases, we see a more like inclusionary populist rhetoric. In other cases, we see an exclusionary rhetoric. The people could be defined along class lines, they could be defined along racial lines. So I think most of what I study has more to do with like right-wing populism as kind of combined with nationalism, which is more often defined in terms of racial, national lines in terms of like kind of creating who is this in-group of people that a party is meant to represent. There's also this elite aspect, which can once again be defined in a lot of ways. So who do we think of when we think of elites? Who do these projects frame as the elites? They might be political elites. They could be scientific elites in some cases. If we see populism kind of connecting with coronavirus politics, um, in some instances, they can be cultural elites. But I think the point here is to kind of see how defining this like black and white worldview between pure people and corrupt elite can be taken in a lot of different directions. So oftentimes we see left-wing populism framing things in terms of class-based politics where there is a corrupt economic elite that's basically withholding opportunities, money from another class of people. This brings me back to part of that definition which is to say that populism is a thin-centered ideology. Essentially, it is not an ideology that, like, exists on its own. It will be attached to other ideologies. So you might have, like, a populist socialist movement. Or you might have a populist nationalist movement. So we see how, like, this same kind of ideological framework can be deployed in a lot of different settings. Yeah, so I think most of what we've seen in Europe and what has gotten a ton of scholarly attention is this right-wing exclusionary populism. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would be parties like the Rassemblement National in France, um, Vox in Spain, who I had talked about a minute ago, Brothers of Italy, AFD in, in Germany. But we also see some inclusionary populism, more leftist class-based populism in Europe. For example, like Podemos in Spain. A couple other things to think about with populism, at least that helped me think about it, is like, there is this dimension where it is ultimately this claim that like the pure people are being not fully represented. But to represent that, you need some form of leadership. So the question is like, if Donald Trump is a populist, how is he representing the pure people? So like this leadership aspect, there can be a lot of different manifestations of it. Oftentimes, we see it as like a strong man or in the French case, like a strong woman. Certainly, there are more men as leaders of this, these exclusionary populist movements, um, but we do see some women at the head. And then we also kind of see this dimension where you need some credentials to claim that you're representing the pure people. So there's a lot of different ways that you can kind of claim those credentials. And I think one thing that's like puzzling on the surface is how could Donald Trump claim to represent the pure people? Um, But actually, we see a lot of like entrepreneurs as representatives of populist movements, as leaders of that. Another example is like Berlusconi in Italy, not necessarily leading a populist movement, but certainly has been characterized as a populist leader. But these are people who can kind of claim, like, I am a self-made man, which is not to say that they are self-made men, but there has to be some claim that you yourself are distinct from the rest of the corrupt elite, and therefore, like, given some origin background story, you can represent the pure people. That's not the only way to assume leadership. There's other People who kind of like, if they're from a political establishment, might always claim that they've been marginalized by the rest of the political establishment, and that kind of gives them some credibility. But I think whenever we see populist leaders, there's always this attempt to link themselves to the people.
1: Why is there a seemingly increasing demand for populist leaders and parties across Europe today? So why now and why in so many places at the same time?
0: Yeah, so I think that's, like, the big question, is, like, how do we explain electoral variation? How do we explain parties or movements or leaders that succeed? One thing that I think is, like, sometimes overlooked in the discussion here is that there's a lot of variation in how successful right-wing exclusionary populist movements are in Europe. Not every country has... A massively successful populist party. Not every country has had an increase recently. A lot of these parties either were born in like the 80s or the early 2000s. So I do think one, not necessarily myth, but I think something to like look out for is to say it's not just this like rising wave of populism. There is considerable variation. But it is true that there has been an increase, especially in certain places. Like, like I said at the beginning, previously in Spain, like in throughout the 2000s, there was no right wing populist party. But come 2019, there's this new party who enters into the national parliament and is now the third largest party in Spain and honestly is like doing very well in terms of polling, potentially around like 20%. So what explains like this demand? a bunch of really smart academics have looked into this and have a lot of different theories. I think where I personally stand is that there's no one thing that explains every case, right? Like there's no magic answer to say, okay, economic decline. If we see economic decline, we should expect right-wing populism. But I do think all of these different factors can be really powerful in explaining certain cases And there are, like, variables that are likely to increase demand. So there's a lot of talk about the economy. There's a lot of talk about culture and cultural backlash. So one logic is to say that in times of economic decline, people will kind of revert to this in-group, out-group basis of, like, seeing the world and then support a group that is, like, committed to protecting their in-group interests. I think one thing we should be careful about with those economic explanations is that first of all there are many instances of upwardly mobile people supporting these parties, right? So I think in the American case there has been like a good amount of research to say that most of Trump's support is actually coming from people that are doing better economically. And I think that is like true elsewhere if we think about class politics, left and right, which don't necessarily fully describe the political space now, but class politics would suggest that parties on the right versus parties on the left, we should see parties on the right actually attracting wealthier people. The The economy can certainly create this demand, but we should also be wary of the assumption that economic downturn will automatically lead someone to embrace this in-group, out-group, pure people, corrupt everyone else mindset. We should also think about the fact that we can measure economic downturn in a lot of different ways. So what does economic downturn mean for creating demand? Is that at the individual level? Is that like your community? Is that compared to your parents? So maybe like mobility throughout life? This isn't really the answer on (laughs) the like, what does the economy do for demand for populism? But I do think, like, there's a complicated story there. The other thing that I personally feel like is probably a stronger explanation for demand for right-wing populism is this, like, cultural backlash story in terms of, like, some form of status loss anxiety drawing people to a particular message or party. So if for some reason, the past was good to you in a certain way, and then you see policies, movement, media, that's threatening that privileged position, there's kind of a natural progression towards a group that is vowed to protect the status quo and protect your status. There's this really interesting book that I read recently on Eastern Europe from this author, Lenka Bustakova, but basically making this argument that right-wing populist parties succeed when the parties in government implement policy that's meant to protect or elevate the status of minorities. So it's basically this like backlash argument to specific policies. Once those right-wing populists gain power and potentially reverse some of those policies, most voters go back to the center, or at least to supporting more centrist parties. So I think I, I found this a very convincing argument, um, which is to say, I do think that among people who do feel like very threatened in terms of their cultural status, any concrete policy that's going to like threaten that further logically might draw someone to a party who's vowing to fight against that. So that's kind of like the cultural explanation as I understand it. These all mix. I think they're like pretty specific to different places as well. Yeah. And then I think the other big part of this, which actually folds into both like cultural and economic explanations, is the role of immigration. So certainly exclusionary populists play up integration or immigration as like the big issue. I think around Europe, like these parties center immigration in their platforms and that can be framed in a lot of ways but fundamentally immigrants are considered outside of the pure people a part of a like globalist elite project and therefore both threatening economic positions of natives and cultural positions of natives immigration certainly an issue i think this is going to be something that we see right now with Ukraine and the possibility for refugees coming into Europe. Um, But there's also more elements to this where, what is the difference between white immigrants and non-white immigrants for these parties? So once again, kind of referring us back to these definitions of who is the pure people, who can be folded into society in that way. So I don't know if that's an answer to the question. It's a lot of answers. Yeah, yeah I think it's yeah. it's that my own feeling is that no single factor should explain the demand. But there's a lot of ways in which we can kind of piece together a logical story. Most of them revolving around some sort of like status loss message.
2: All right, so you kind of touched on this already, but would you say that there's a greater demand coming from the public in Europe wanting more populist party leaders? Or do you think that it's a demand that's also being created by the people wanting political power themselves?
0: Hmm. Could I ask a clarifying question there? Sure. Um, Do you mean, like, the the leaders of these parties wanting power, or, like, individuals wanting to ascend?
2: It's more, do you think that the demand in the public is being generated or accelerated by the actual mm-hmm. leaders themselves adopting this kind of mindset or catering to that like preference mm-hmm. of choices. So it's like which came first, the chicken yeah. and the egg? Yeah,
0: yeah I mean that's <laughs> another great question and another answer that I will not give a straightforward <laughs> or <another> okay. non-straightforward <laughs> answer. I think that they both are happening in tandem. It is absolutely true that populist leaders are kind of stoking the fire and trying to create this demand there is some very interesting research on populists actually like manufacturing crises and trying to claim a crisis when there maybe isn't one so i think a lot of the rhetoric around immigration for radical right parties is kind of in this spirit of like manufacturing a crisis Um, Especially, like, if you look at some of the Southern European examples, parties will often talk about how immigrants are coming to the country and, like, potentially presenting a danger for women or something like that in terms of, like, sexual politics. Thus, kind of pushing forward, like, a story that they see as, like, the number one story in the news. And I think this is, like, an example of, trying to manufacture a crisis and say, like, we are in this moment where if we don't close our borders, the safety of our own people are is in jeopardy. So I do think there is certainly that element of leaders creating demand. The success of that is going to be varied. Um, different leaders are better or worse at that. And the other thing is there's this question of, like, does crisis need to be manufactured or are crises sometimes real? So certainly like with the COVID crisis, this does present an opportunity for populists to potentially paint like the elite as mishandling the crisis or something like that. And I think like to a certain degree, that is not a manufactured crisis. Like we are certainly in a health crisis and there are examples of people in power mishandling the situation so i think this is like all to say i do believe that the actual individuals that are deciding between different strategies and different like topics to analyze and try to raise their salience they do have a lot of agency in creating this demand but it's not always going to work and certainly like there's no just like, before there was no demand and now because the politicians started saying this, like this is the truth, I think they're kind of interacting with each other. Politicians are trying to seize on political opportunities and grow them into greater opportunities.
2: Do you think that the the idea of manufacturing problems that aren't necessarily there is unique to this strain of politics or is that just a more general trend that might be... Hmm. in a a bunch of different ideologies?
0: I think that is a a really good question. I would say that radical right parties are not the only parties to manufacture crises, but I do think they're some of the worst offenders. I think that if you look at an inclusionary populist claiming that there is a crisis of economic inequality... I think that has a lot more basis in fact than a crisis of women's safety in a country as a result, not that like women are have total security, but as a result of like migrants presenting a threat. Mm -hmm. So I think like it is true that different parties are going to try to raise the salience of certain issues. Um, to try to advance their political agenda or kind of advance their chances in the next election. But right-wing parties have certainly been at the forefront of like introducing some new issues and really claiming like something is a huge crisis.
1: Moving away from Europe for just a second, how do you think about the increasing presence of some of the defining features of right-wing populism in the U.S. today? Like, how concerned are you about the future of democracy?
0: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's a great question. <laughs> We're just uh, eroding
2: them on today.
0: Yeah. Um, <laughs> As I said, yeah. I'm like,
1: damn, that's a hard one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, no, no. Well, so there's a couple of things here. Number one is that, like, I do think anyone that is thinking about these types of questions should try to seek a lot of different voices on it because I don't think that one person is going to have the answer to like, is democracy doomed in the U S and elsewhere or something like that. A couple things to think about. So if we like, let's think about the words that we're using here. So is liberal democracy under threat? If that is the question, we should think about two aspects of that, like the liberal piece of democracy and the democratic piece of democracy. So liberal democracy, at least my understanding, and I'm not like a political theorist who definitely has a better understanding, although there is majority rule, minority rights are protected. Um, Every person in that polity has certain basic fundamental rights that are protected. The democracy aspect of it, to my understanding, has more to do with elections and turnover of power. So is there responsible parties who are arguing for different types of policies, and is it possible that power transfers peacefully between them? I do think in the U.S., both of those aspects are under threat from certain movements. Like, I think the Trump movement has certainly threatened the minority rights aspect of things and basic fundamental rights aspect, as well as the democratic integrity piece. I also want to stress, though, that, like, we can say this, but it's not like the U.S. has this perfect democracy before Trump, either. Our basic fundamental rights of every citizen in the U.S. have always been protected. So I think when we think about like what this new strain of right-wing populism in the U.S., which is very overt in kind of defining who those people are, who the pure people are, who the corrupt elite are, I think is a force for backsliding. But it's not that it's like chipping away at this perfect institution. I think it's something that is moving the scales on a democracy always in progress. So... I will say, like, I definitely think that it is a threat to American democracy and liberal democracy everywhere, but even without this threat, all liberal democracies that I know still have a long ways to go towards actually living up to those ideals.
2: Mm, Yeah, fair point. We're going to jump into some of your research now, just to make sure we get to some of your publications. So... You have a forthcoming article with Marta Lorimer, am I saying the name right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Called France and the Resemblant National that's part of an edited volume entitled In Populists and the Pandemic, How Populists Around the World Respond to COVID-19. So would you be able to tell us about the research in that article and what the main arguments were and some of the findings?
0: Yeah, definitely. So first of all, thanks for asking. Um, <laughs> I feel like every person that does research loves talking about their research, so uh... Great question. So in this paper, we're looking specifically at the Rassemblement National in France, um, which is Marine Le Pen's party. People may or may not have heard of this, but basically this is a party formed in the 1980s with the goal of bringing different strands of the French far right together. Their main like, ideological projects have always been anti-immigration, anti-Islam, and anti-European Union. And they're often kind of pushing this message forward that France is in decline. So I think here we might circle back to some of those like demand side factors that we were talking about with like status loss. And that is directly the message that they're pushing that France used to be this one thing. And because of various corrupt elite forces, it is in decline. So that's just like some basic context. The The purpose of this project, it's along with a bunch of other case studies. So looking at other populists in different countries, basically say, how did this populist leader or party react to the pandemic and why? So relatively straightforward question. Yeah. And we basically try to describe that, um, and put an explanation to it, which actually leads super well into the French elections, which I think we'll be talking about later.
2: Or you can talk about them now if you'd like to.
0: Either, we'll, we'll, we'll come well, to yeah, it. It's yeah, nice so, to right. so we basically thought, basically, Le Pen's party is like, has published a couple documents on their response to the coronavirus. Um, we looked at, like, social media, and just generally following the party, um, and identified, like, this two-pronged approach that the party has taken over the past two years. The first is that they sought to link the pandemic to these ideological points that they've always been stressing, which is basically to say, connect the pandemic to border closures. So if the party has always been anti-immigration, we need to lock our borders down. Say COVID is proof that we should have always had lockdown borders the same is also true le pen talked about how in migrant centers there was like ppe being supplied there while other like french institutions didn't have those so basically evidence that they're using and i'm doing air quotes which can't be seen on a podcast (laughs) Um, but evidence that they're trying to use to say like look we've been right all along and saying COVID is linked to these other issues. If we weren't so dependent on the EU, we wouldn't be in as bad of a situation as we are now. The other thing that they did, which gets a little bit in the weeds, but we kind of labeled their very harsh critique of President Emmanuel Macron as a techno-populist critique. And I'd like to like try to explain that. So essentially, we thought that the ways in which le pen was talking about COVID and talking about macron response had elements of both like technocratic appeals so basically appealing making an argument that government should be run by experts and that there's a fundamental difference between good and bad public policy so that is like the technocratic side and then the populist side is to still say We still have this division, this like clear division between corrupt elites and pure people. So if you look at the ways in which they criticize Macron, it was never about like COVID denial or an anti-science perspective or like anti-mask or any of that. Some of the things that we saw in the US, it was always about Macron's failure to find the right experts and implement the right public policy. So essentially making this argument that in order to represent the pure people as best as possible, there was a right way to do things, Macron just did it the wrong way. So essentially, like, I think one thing to think about here, though, is that we have an exclusionary right-wing populist, right? On the surface, especially for an American audience, we might expect science denial or some of the same tactics that, like, use bleach, all this stuff that we saw in the U.S. I think we saw a lot less of that in the French case, at least from Le Pen and her party. So this is a study focusing on the party, not the voters. So in terms of the party, they do kind of take this more, like, slightly more responsible tract of trying to say, like, we should follow the right science while still Levying a critique against Macron and linking COVID to their like basic issues.
2: That is so interesting. That is fascinating. It
0: is. Yeah. Can I try to explain why? Or try yeah, to give our reason it. For Yeah, yes, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I just
1: feel like we always link. Like, these kinds of leaders and these kinds of parties to, like, absolute science deniers. Mm -hmm. They just don't want to think about it, or they're worried that it'll bring down their, like, their
2: popularity. Like, we were just talking about it in Russia. Yeah, but at the same time, I feel like everyone associates this, like, intense science denial with only, like, the worst of the worst American, like, the stereotypical super right rural American. mm -hmm. Did you have an explanation? Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, first of all, I also don't want to overstress that, like, Le Pen was this, like, perfect, like, yeah. science person. I yeah. think the initial support for lockdowns, like, kind of tapered off a year later. And there was definitely more of a reassertion of, like, we should try to get back out there later on. But still, fundamentally, there wasn't, like, a denial that. COVID was a pressing issue that needed to be dealt with, with expertise. So why would this party do this? I think as an American, like, it is kind of weird because we are saturated with American news. And it's like, okay, if we're going to equate Trump with other populist right-wing leaders, then we should expect similar reactions. But we kind of framed this response in something that Le Pen has been doing for the better part of the last 10 years, which is an attempt to de-demonize her party, which is like a, a term that's been thrown around by some academics, but essentially an attempt to make the French far-right more like plausible as a party for more centrist voters. However, this is a really hard line to walk because... The minute you start tacking towards the center, you risk alienating parts of your base. And actually, with the French election right now, we saw another extreme right challenger that's not Le Pen. So Le Pen has been pursuing this strategy. One question is, why would she do that? The party occupies a pretty strong space in the French far right. They have come to represent maybe 20% and have like done well in in European elections, but I think the answer to this really lies in the way that the French electoral system is set up. So this is another piece of the puzzle of like right-wing populism in Europe that we didn't really talk about with supply and demand factors, but there are certain institutions that these parties have to interact with. For example, the French electoral system. So the way that this works is that it's a two-round system where the first round, a bunch of candidates compete to try to get the top two spots. After that, they do a second round, and then it's just two candidates. So what we've seen in the past, in I have a couple examples. In 2002, in the first round, Le Pen's father, who was the original founder of the party, in the first round, he got 17% which was actually enough to get second place and go into a runoff with Jacques Chirac, who ended up being French president. So the first round, Chirac had 20%. Le Pen had 17%. In the second round, Le Pen rose his numbers from 17 to 18%, and Chirac got 82% of the vote, which I think is pretty indicative of the fact that, okay, French far-right may be able to garner some support But if you actually want the presidency, it's not going anywhere, right? He literally raised one point when it went from like a field of, I don't know how many people were competing in the first round, but a field of a certain number to two. He got 1% more. In 2017, when it was uh, Marine Le Pen versus Macron in the first round, Le Pen got 21%, Macron got 24%. In the second round, Macron got 66%, Le Pen around 34%. So better than her father had done, but certainly not like a real threat at the presidential palace. Part of this de-demonization strategy that a lot of people have noticed over time is an attempt for Le Pen to actually want to have a shot at president. Um, She has a very good shot at making the second round, But after you pass the first round, you're going to need to mobilize some other voters. And we kind of framed this pandemic response of like a harsh critique against Macron, but also this more like technocratic appeal to experts and science as a way for Le Pen to very carefully walk that line between moderation and radicalization. So she's still able to hit on all these issues of immigration and the European Union and the decline of France and how Macron is doing such a bad job. But she's also able to do it with like an air of respectability, which really does fit into this larger strategy.
1: I guess for the sake of time, we'll we'll keep talking about the French election. Sure. Uh, there's another one coming up in April. So, you know, we, we got to know, how do you think it's going to go this year? How do you think it'll play out where it seems Macron is <laughs> primarily facing mm-hmm. more right and extreme right candidates.
0: Yeah. So, it is a very interesting election and it's hard to predict at the moment. So, Le Pen is one challenger, Pecres is the the challenger for the Republicans who are the like center-right party, and then there's also another extreme right challenger, Éric Zemmour, who Used to be this, like, television host, but has a history in politics.
1: This sounds familiar. And
0: and most people are saying, like, that he is more extreme than Le Pen. More willing to totally do away with that, like, respectability kind of face. So I think, at the moment, like, the last polls I saw is that Macron's around, like, 25%. And, well pretty much surely get into the second round. Le Pen is around 17. Zemmour, 15. Pécresse, around 15 as well. So that would be like an interesting race to see who actually does make it to the second round. One really interesting thing, and this might be dated by the time that this comes out, is that in France, to get on the ballot in the first round, you need 500 signatures from Local or national elected representatives. And Le Pen and Zamor are actually still under that number with only a week to go. They're both in like the high 300s, I think, but they're actually really struggling. And this has often been a problem for the, like Le Pen's party because they don't have super strong, like local implementation. They don't have a ton of mayors that they can count on for signatures. So this is actually like, it, most likely won't be an issue but if this comes out and they are not on the ballot i'm gonna sound like a fool so i wanted to raise it to say it is an interesting weird election because there's all these like specific rules um, yeah. to the french system i
1: feel like weird challenges populist <laughs> leaders weird
0: challenges but i do think i think that If we circle back to to what I was saying in terms of, like, Le Pen's strategy in COVID, I think part of Zemmour's appeal could be that, like, potential base that Le Pen was counting on that she possibly could have alienated through some of the rhetoric throughout COVID. I do think Le Pen most likely will be the challenger, but I, once again, like, would be kind of shocked if macron didn't he seems extremely well positioned to win in the second round
1: well i remember being stressed out
2: in 2017 so it sounds like it's going to be another
0: yeah it's going to be something (laughs) interesting to watch for sure
2: the beauty of politics is it just keeps going (laughs) every couple years you get another thrill that's true Um, we're coming up on our time here, so we just want to ask, is there anything that we haven't touched yet that you would like to touch on before we go?
0: A couple things to just flag in terms of thinking about right-wing populism in Europe. There's a lot of just, like, interesting cases to follow and try to explain and make sense of. There was legislative elections in Portugal a couple weeks ago and a new right-wing populist party entered the scene only with 7% of the vote but previously they had not been represented. I think the Spanish case is extremely interesting that there's kind of this like meteoric very fast rise from nothing three or four years ago to now one of the strongest parties in the system um, at least like in terms of vote percentage. So all things to just like I guess keep your eye on and if you're interested in these questions and interested in like explaining how parties react and respond to their external events just like very fascinating cases
1: wrapping up we would love to ask just one at least one fun question i know it's been it's been a long it's been a long (laughs) interview but this is your second year at madison uh as part of the phd program at about my second year i think i I started to figure out which coffee shops were cool, which Mm -hmm. libraries were actually quiet. Mm -hmm. So what are some of your favorite indoor hangouts right now for Mm -hmm. this time of the year? Yeah,
0: that is, that's a good question. I will say that I'm like, I'm a bad person to ask on this because I've only lived in Madison during the pandemic. So I feel like I haven't like gotten to see that much. Hmm. Okay. Restaurants? I love Little Tibet on East Johnson Street. I think it's super good, and it has an awesome interior. I like Fairtrade House on... On, uh, on state? Yeah, on mm-hmm. state. They have a super cool patio that, like, I was like, wow, I didn't even know this existed. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, though. Come back to me in, like, two years, and I'll have better <laughs> answers for you. You'll
2: have it all figured out. <laughs> That's fair. We'll circle back. We'll circle back. <laughs> Do you have a favorite outdoor location that you go to when mm-hmm. you feel the need to be outside i know right now it's like a little a little difficult
0: yeah i i love madison outdoors like so i feel like very basic and standard for saying like the terrace is awesome but i also feel like all the parks in madison i've really loved i've played some disc golf at heistand park and that's really fun <laughs> if you're into that nice. um, I really like Tenney Park, and they have this, like, space that goes out into the water, really good sunset views, so. i so you
2: All good answers. I don't think you can go wrong choosing outdoor locations here. You'll find yeah. a pretty occult following for, like, most
0: parks, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah.
2: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. This conversation could be, like, two more hours long, because there's just so much to cover, but we'll have to have you back sometime.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much. It was fun.
1: For more information, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Addison Lathers
2: and Claire Salmi
1: and produced by Amy Gangle. Thanks for listening.